0: Thanks, Richard, and Glenn and Jude, and Liam and Jamie. Evening, everyone. Uh, can I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. As Richard said, it's been a while since we sang that song, Great is the Darkness. And at one level, for those of you who are coming on Sunday mornings, uh, that last verse in particular is kind of more connected to that series. Great celebrations on that final day, when out of the heavens you do come. And darkness will vanish and sorrow will end And rulers will bow at your throne And and then that chorus which as you know is is lifted directly Or the first part of it is lifted directly from the penultimate verse of Revelation. in Revelation Come Lord Jesus It's a kind of prayer right through Revelation But it's particularly right there at the end But the reason that I asked Richard if we could sing it this evening Was mainly because of the honesty expressed in the first verse uh, Which we, we sang together Great is... The darkness that covers the earth, oppression, injustice, and pain, nations are slipping in hopeless despair, though many have come in your name, and watching while sanity dies, touched by the madness and lies. And as Richard said, that song was written, it was actually written 32 years ago, and those lyrics by Noel Richards still provide a pretty accurate description of the world in which we live in today. It still is a dark place and oppression and justice and pain do exist. But the thing is, as we're about to see and as we get back into Ecclesiastes 2,500 years ago, it wasn't that much different. Pain, injustice and oppression were tangible realities. And so let me read the first verse of chapter four as the writer who describes himself as the preacher, the one in search of meaning and purpose, as He shares and expresses these rather depressing but moving in deeply relevant words, he says this, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Remember that phrase means in the real world and also apart from God. I see, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, But there was no one to comfort them. Oppression is tragic. And as these headlines that I lifted from various sources this week reveal, it's it's alive and well. It's rife in our world today. Literally millions of people are being oppressed in one way or another and for all kinds of reasons. And their tears flow. And the question is who will comfort them? came across this rather solemn, sobering quote during the week. Nowadays we live in a world where oppression is so widespread that many of us knowingly or unknowingly, willingly or unwillingly become implicated in it. And so as the preacher observes the oppression that he sees, as he beholds the tears of the oppressed and he laments the lack of comfort, he appears to despair. Look at verse two, says, you're better off dead Than to have to live with this and endure it. The dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Is what he says in verse 2. And in some ways you can understand that. Maybe even share his despair. I, I was watching the news this morning. And click came on. You know the BBC tech news. And it profiled this huge rubbish dump outside of Nairobi in Kenya. 30 acres in size. It was said 20 years ago that it was full, and yet about 800 tons are still being dumped there every day. Thousands of people work in that tip, including kids, scarring the garbage. And what many of them are in search of is e waste, and that's why it was on click. Dumped electronic goods, which they salvage or try to salvage in order to use or sell on the Chinese traders, apparently. Why? To provide for their families. And they interviewed this one worker called Stanley, who has worked there in what is an incredibly dangerous environment. He's worked there since 2002. 22 years. And the reason he said he was working there since then is because he has no other choice. And I know the issues are complex, but as I watched that this morning, I just felt a sense of despair about Stanley's oppressive long-term situation, his lack of choice. Verse two is strong, I know that, but I felt the despair. Maybe better off dead than never to have been born. And that's what, where the preacher goes in verse three because his thoughts spiral further downwards because downwards, he, he highlights this fortunate group of people or type of person who are not living or not dead. He says, it would be more fortunate for those who've never been born. But better than both, he writes, better than both, both the living and the dead, is he who has not yet been, who has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. I love Eugene Peterson's kind of translation of this, but luckier than the dead or the living is the person who's never been born. It's bleak. Real. And yet, whenever you watch the news and, and you do watch reports of man's inhumanity to man, the evil that one person inflicts upon another, someone stabbed 28 times by two young people, the pain, the oppression, the injustice, you sometimes think no one should ever have to witness that. No one should ever have to deal with that. The thing is, as the preacher reflects on this, he doesn't offer any alternative perspectives or even any hope at this stage. He simply reflects the reality of what he sees under the sun, the reality in the real world. And he makes some comments, but before we do move on to verse four and shift the focus a little, let me make a comment about oppression or just an observation, kind of sidetracking for a bit. Because although despair is a natural reaction, It cannot be and should not be and must not be the only response of those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ in 2024. Years after the preacher wrote these words, Jesus Christ entered our world and he stepped down into darkness. He stepped down into a world of oppression and injustice and pain. And as he launched his ministry, he stands up in a synagogue in Nazareth and he issues his manifesto. And you can read it in full and look for. But included in that inaugural address was a commitment to release the oppressed. That's what I've come to do. And it became a key characteristic of his ministry. And as his followers today, we are to follow his example. We are to stand up and speak up for the oppressed. We are to get behind those organizations who exist to provide help and hope for victims of oppression. Organizations like International Justice Mission or Flourish or Tear Fund or many, many others. We're to pray for the oppressed as well as to preach good news to the poor, etc. But like the preacher, we need to see the tears of the oppressed. But rather than reckon they'd be better off dead, Or never to have been born. We need to become potential comforters in some shape or form. We need to reflect the ministry in the heart of Jesus. I realize there's so much more that that could be said. But I just wanted to kind of say track on that one. But back to tonight's text. Because in verses four and six. the, The searcher then, the preacher then returns to a subject that he's already considered in part. In chapters 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes and that is the issue of work and labor and here's what he says then I saw so he has seen the oppression then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor this also is vanity and a striving after the wind the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. In terms of work, the preacher picks up on what he sees as the driving force for so many people. As he observes that he sees that the driving force is that subtle and deadly sin of envy. Envy of neighbour. This kind of mindset and the incentive of, of keeping up with the next person, keeping up with the Joneses, this feeling of discontented or resentful longing that's aroused by someone else's possessions and their qualities or their luck. Someone has said that it's, it's not that people work hard in order to have certain things, it's that they work hor- hard in order to be seen as having certain things. And there's quite a difference in those two approaches to work into life, and so we do. We buy particular things. We go particular places, not just because we necessarily want to, but because we want to impress at times. That's what the preacher observed. We want to keep up with those around us. We envy them. We're jealous of their what they have. And so we work hard in order to become like them. And what's the point? He says, working harder than we need to, and longer than we have to because we envy a perceived standard of life or lifestyle, it's just all meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. Why bother? And it raises so many issues, doesn't it? Like, like motivation and competition. The competitive streak runs through lots of us. And obviously competition can be a really healthy thing in sport and in work. And it can stretch us and it can be formational. I'm not knocking that desire, the desire to do well, to do your best. But competition can have a dark side. It can degenerate into becoming resentful of others, making it all about self, becoming bitter and jealous and envious of what other people have, and so that's what drives, and that's, that's what the preacher observes. It's a dog-eat-dog dog world out there. It's a rat race, as so many people point out, but we're not dogs and we're not rats, we're human beings. And there may be this kind of popular philosophy that promotes the idea that we are all, if we really strip it all back, we're all competitive individualists. And there's probably more than a ring of truth to that thinking, but we need to be aware and accept that that kind of attitude and mindset has deeply personal, social, and spiritual implications and consequences. Spiritually, that mindset will leave you empty and unsatisfied, because as we thought about two weeks ago, eternity has been placed in every single heart. There is this God-shaped vacuum within all of us and no amount of human endeavor and no amount of toil or material possessions is ever going to fit it or fill it. And personally and socially living like that is going to leave us very often feeling lonely and isolated because unhealthy competition has the ability to drive wages between us and others. And as a result of being too busy and too driven, there is that inevitable knock-on effect in our relationships and our friendships. And this is what preacher observes we risk chasing after the wind he says and it could all be meaningless but just in case we kind of think the searcher or the preacher is advocating a life of well no work so don't knock your pan and just just sit back do as little as possible he goes on to make the point that those who adopt that approach are just fools and in biblical language and terms we know that that is a very strong and negative word to use to describe anyone but look at verse five he says the fool fools his hands, in other words, he sits back, he opts out, he puts his feet up 24-7, but what's the result? He eats his own flesh. Or if you have a different translation, it says he ruins himself. You see, laziness leads, as far as the preachers, because laziness leads to self-destruction. Idleness eats away at you, it eats away at who you are and who you were created to be. And so as he continues, it's so depressing in many ways at times and yet so real. And in verse 6, he goes on, and this is poetic and brilliant. He says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Now, what does that mean? And so after this folded hands picture of the lazy fool, he then gives us two more hand references. And there's the one handful picture and approach to work. In other words, this is the approach to work that is not driven by envy or greed. You work hard, yes, but there's balance. You still have one hand free to do other things, to enjoy other activities. And the preacher says that's not only better, but that brings a sense of peace, a sense of tranquility, a sense of quietness to your life. The second picture in reference depicts a two-handful approach to work. This is the approach of the workaholic, laboring through almost every hour, God saying, no time to do or pursue anything else. It's a tough slog, it's a daily grind, it's full of toil, but worse still, it's just a chasing after the wind, he says. Work is important, don't drop out, but don't get sucked in either. Find balance, or rather, adopt a healthy rhythm how relevant is that to 21st century society? The preacher then goes on to emphasize and stress the value and importance of friendship. But before he does that, he connects what he's just been saying regarding work with what he's about to say about friendship. And about all this envy stuff about your neighbor. If you look at verse 7, first half of verse 8, he says this. I observed yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. What is it? This is the case of a man or a woman who's all alone. Just over two months ago, the World Health Organization declared that loneliness is now a pressing global threat. 25 centuries ago, the preacher observed a man feeling those effects. And so as a result, what did this man do? He buries himself in work. Look at the rest of verse 8. Yet there is no end to his toil. But the trouble was, suddenly he salt into his wounds because although it meant he made lots of money, he's never happy. Look at verse 8 again. Yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with his riches. He's not content. But more than that, he realizes he's got no one to share it with. Been working so hard. He's got no one to share it with. Verse eight, continuing, for whom am I toiling? Why am I doing this? And it just increases his feeling of loneliness, which is why, again, the preacher, as he looks at this, he says, this is meaningless as well. This is a miserable business. So is there any hope? Is there any way forward? Is there any cure? Well, yes, there is, thankfully. Thankfully. And the answer, what is the answer? It's friendship. It's companionship. It's intimacy. I already mentioned that World Health Organization's declaration a couple of months ago. Let me, let me read the full headlines, because this isn't striking. The World Health Organization has, declare, has declared loneliness to be a pressing global threat, with the U.S. Surgeon General saying that its mortality effects are equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. Another recent Meta poll, they did it with Gallup, surveyed across 142 countries found that nearly one in four adults across our world reported being very lonely. Two and a half thousand years ago, the preacher speaks into this threat and find it as he highlights and he stresses the importance and value of friendship. Some verses 9-12. to 12. I know these words that we're about to look at are very familiar. They're often read at weddings. There's no indication that the preacher had marriage in mind when he wrote these words. I'm not saying they're irrelevant to marriage, so if you had them read at your wedding please do. It's not, I'm not saying they're irrelevant to marriage, but I certainly don't think they're exclusively for it. And so he begins, he continues to look and observe And all the points he has made about oppression and envy and loneliness. He then says, listen, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Now, of course, two can achieve more than one. But the added idea here is that they receive more for their combined effort and investment. And one of the very best investments you will ever make in life is not a financial one, but it's a relational one. Someone has suggested that there are two things he can commit yourself too in life, building empires and accumulating, accumulating possessions or building relationships and gathering friends. And the preacher goes on to develop the importance of friendship and companionship as he sets out three benefits, as he sets out three advantages of it. Or another way of looking at this is here are three characteristics of a real friend, the kind we all need and the kind we all need to be. And so as I start to weighing this up, Let me encourage you to ask yourself, am I this sort of friend to someone or to some others? And so he begins. A real friend helps you when you're down. Look at verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. We all need friends like that who are there for you in the good times and the bad times. Who are there in the highs and lows of life. The friend who, according to another wisdom writer, is always loyal. Loves at all times. This is Proverbs seventeen seventy. A brother born to help in times of need. According to a 2021 survey, another one, most of us report having fewer friends than we once did. And the reason for that apparently is, as a result of the fallout of COVID-19, for prolonged periods of time, it meant that for many of us, maintaining friendships and connections was much more difficult and demanding. But it is so important for all kinds of reasons that we nurture and value good friendships, especially whenever we find ourselves going through tough times, because friends can be the lifeline or the outlet in those situations. The preacher goes on to say, people who are alone when they fall, So the end of verse 10, are in real trouble. A real friend is present and willing to lift you up when you fall. We need friends like that. We need to be those kind of friends. Secondly, he says, a real friend provides warmth. Verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? I know this is about more than physical warmth. The cold winds of life blow hard at times. The bitter chill of winter is keenly felt. We all go through those seasons of life and therefore we need to know and feel the warmth of friendship at an emotional level. And true friends provide that for us. They get alongside us. They put an arm around our shoulder. They stay close to us. They provide that emotional and physical warmth in a sometimes cold and cruel world. If you got a friend like that, Are you that kind of friend? And then finally he says, a real friend defends you, verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. It's hard or harder to fight battles on your own. Whenever these words were originally written, it was in that context where military combat was primarily hand-to-hand fighting. And so soldiers often went into battle with a partner, someone they could count on, someone they could trust with their very lives. And they would stand back to back so that they could fight together and deal with whatever came at them from whatever angle. They literally had each other's back. And I don't know what you're up against at the moment in this season of your life, but having a friend to stand with you, having a friend to share your struggle, to defend you, to watch your back, makes such a difference. Again, do you have that kind of a friend? Are you that kind of a friend? And the preacher finishes this short section with that classic phrase, a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. And as I said, these verses, and particularly this phrase is often applied to the idea of marriage with a husband plus wife plus God as a cord of three strands. And that's good and that's helpful. Absolutely is. But in this context, I think the preacher's making the point, it's not just about having a friend. It's about having a couple of friends, three friends, four friends. Friends who pick you up. Friends who provide warmth, Friends who defend you. Friends who make you strong. Three-fold chord. So, let me sum up a few of the key points as the guys come back again to lead us in our last couple of songs. So here's the sum up. Oppression is real, and despair is natural. But for us, not only do we feel that and sense that, but rather than feeling helpless and hopeless, let us follow. Let us be people who follow the example of Jesus. And may we be people who stand up for and speak out for those who are oppressed. May we seek their freedom. Working all the hours that God sends out of Envy to keep up is pointless. Let's check our motivation. Sitting around, doing very little is foolish as well. And so adopt this one handful approach to work. Find a healthy rhythm when it comes to work. Loneliness and isolation, again, is real in our world. And increasingly real it would seem. And it's heartbreaking. Friendship is critical. Next week, we're going to look at the preacher's take on authentic spirituality and also the myth of money. Again, two highly topical and relevant issues in 2024. Richard.